This is the Becoming Educated podcast. Our mission is to inform educators, challenge their thinking, and inspire them to teach with joy. So on the Becoming Educated podcast today is Johnny Utley. Johnny is the CEO of the Education Alliance Multi-Academy Trust in East Yorkshire and Hull and was previously head teacher at South Hunsley School. As a national leader of education, he has worked with schools in many different contexts and is committed to a school improvement approach that puts ethical leadership at the heart of our system so schools create culture in which staff genuinely thrive. Johnny writes a blog called Trust Leadership and speaks on leadership and school culture. Johnny is also a co-author of the wonderful Putting Staff First alongside John Thompson. Johnny, thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. Oh, lovely to be on, Darren. Thank you for having me. <clears throat> Certainly. So just, just to kick us off and, and ease us into the interview, can you give us a quick overview of your career today and, of course, how you became, how you came to be CEO of the Education <laughs> Alliance? Yeah, that's great. Um like a lot of people, I'm doing a job I never imagined I'd, I'd be doing. Um, I'm doing a job that didn't exist when I went into teaching. Um, so I started teaching back in 98. I'm a, a trained history and politics teacher. Um, and I'm missing it at the moment because if ever there was a time to be teaching politics, it's probably right now. Um, so I did um, did a number of years um, down south, first of all, and then moved up to York. Um, and worked at Huntington School um, as a history teacher and then a head of year. Um, and then John Thompson became head, um, and I was fortunate enough to be promoted onto his SLT as an assistant head, um, which is where we kind of first started our conversation about education in schools, which has been going on for about 14 years now, I think, um, on and off. Um, and then I went from there. At the time when um, schools in England were being given the opportunity to become academies after the uh, 2010 election um, and I moved schools to become deputy head at South Hunsley School which is a, a really big um, secondary school in the East Riding and it's quite interesting because we'd just gone through the conversation at Huntington about whether we should academise or not um, and we decided not to, not for any political reasons but just because the, the deal that local authority in York were giving schools is a very good one um, but the school that I arrived in had just become an academy so it was quite different um, a kind of different um, experience, really. Um, and then from there, I kind of think there's a big element of um, right place, right time. Um, we were just beginning to set up as a multi-academy trust, and my predecessor, Chris Abbott, was starting to move out of headship into kind of executive leadership. Um, so I became the head of the school, which was a great thing to do. Um, I think there's benefits and disadvantages of maths, but one of the good things as a head is that you can kind of move into a role when you feel that you're not absolutely 100% ready because you got that support around you hopefully um, and then from there we had a, a succession plan as the as the trust grew um, and in 2018 I was appointed CEO so I've been CEO now for two years um, and we've got um, yeah six schools we've got four secondaries two primaries and also we've got um, a skit we do our own teacher training um, so the the organization's about 6,000 pupils um, about a thousand staff, um, and if I'm absolutely honest, I'm 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 actually less trained for this than I have been for any of my other jobs, <laughs> <laughs> which is a bit scary when you stop and think about it. But I've got a good team around me, so um, I think I get away with it. No, certainly, and I think some of the things we're going to talk about today probably probably show that that what what you do what you guys do in your in your trust and what the work that John does at Huntington definitely helps staff to thrive. So you mentioned there that. Um, you've been working with John Thompson for about fourteen years, and you're, you've you've released a, a wonderful book in, in putting staff first. So has that been part of your conversation on that fourteen years, or could you share how how putting staff first came about? Yeah, it's it's it's, it's interesting, really. It, I mean, the the actual the kind of idea for the book only kind of clicked into place about eighteen months ago, I think. Um, and yeah, I think I mean John, John and I see see the education world in quite a similar way. And it was quite interesting, as I said before, you know, he, I don't call him this, he calls himself this. He says he's a dinosaur um, because he's a head of a single um, local authority school. Um, and I've ended up as a, as a CEO. Um, and there's kind of a, a half a joke. One of the talks we do is the odd couple. Um, and what we kind of say in that is that if you, if you listen to a lot of the, 
the voices on Twitter, me and him shouldn't be friends, we shouldn't get on because we're from kind of different educational worlds. But actually, um, about two years ago, we were talking a lot about the fact that we were doing similar things, but in different contexts. Um, and both of us have got really tired with the kind of shoutiness of some of the debate in education. Um, and the concept for the book started out as a sort of reflection on leadership in different contexts. And then from there, it became, you know, we we reached the conclusion as we were kind of talking over various coffees and bacon butties that the thing that we had most in common was that idea that actually you hear lots and lots of stuff absolutely understandably about students first, young people first and all the rest of it. And of course, that's what we're about. But by focusing on that and saying that staff should pay any price to do the right thing for young people and it has ended up having a negative effect on youngsters because actually what you need to do is you need to look after your staff first because they've got to be the absolute best they can be for the young people so the young people can do well so we were just trying to challenge some of the narrative around um kind of binary thinking in education you know that you either have to be a trust or a local authority school or you're warm strict or you're progressive or whatever you know the tie of some label is and say actually most leaders in education have got 80 percent in common share the you know the 80 percent of the challenges are the same regardless of your context um and the bottom line is this there's great multi-academy trusts and there's some shocking ones and there's great local authority schools and there's some shocking ones um and what we tried to do was kind of pull out what we thought was the was the key, which is really about how you support and develop your staff. Certainly, I like what you said there about, of course, we focus on, on students first, but the staff are in front of the students and it's important that their well-being and, and, and their development is is prioritised so that they can give their best for the young mm. people. I like how you articulated that. Throughout the book, you talk about blueprint schools. What, mm. are, the, what are the key fi- features of a, of a blueprint school? Mm. Um, I mean, this was a, the, the, the idea came because we were, when we were talking about the book, we were kind of, it was a bit of a rambly conversation. It didn't really have a focus. And what we were trying to say is that, you know, there's, if you can identify certain features that can be applied in any, in any context, um, you can create a thriving school or a thriving groups of schools. So there's kind of four or five bits to it. The, the, the first bit, um, and it sounds cheesy because it's the title of the book, but it's actually understanding that you have to put staff first. But it's not its not lip service. It's not saying, oh, yeah, we do well-being or we're a bit worried about workload. Um, it's actually recognising and, and deeply believing that 70, 80% of the performance of any young person is the quality of the member of staff who's in front of them. So therefore, that's the bit that you've got to develop and, and nurture. And in a, in a blueprint school or in a blueprint trust, that goes right through the organisation. Governors get it, the SLT get it, and it's right through the entire um, operation. Mm-hmm. Second bit of it is, is about how leaders behave. Um, and we say, you know, in the book, and we try in our schools and in, in my trust to say that the fundamental role of the leader is to reduce anxiety in the org- in the organisation and to remove barriers. Um, and that all too often, and I'm sure I've done it myself, people will tell you who I've worked with, we create the anxiety or we erect the barriers. Um, and actually, um, a really good leader, really effective leader, um, tries to take those things away. Um, the third bit of it then is is that it's a school where well-being becomes the byproduct of everything that you do. Um, so you hear lots of, you know, what's the well-being program, what's the well-being focus, and actually, well-being isn't the thing you do. Well-being is the result of what you do. Um, so reducing workload, getting that, you know, that balance, work-home balance right. I think one area that I'd like us, you know, looking back, a lot of spent a lot of time talking to Emma Turner recently about flexible working, and I think if I if I rewrote it, I'd be a bit more explicit around that. I think. Because it's that whole thing, you know, genuine flexible working, proper work-life balance, workload development. And the the result then is well-being, um, you know, rather than it being the other way around. Um, and then the other bits, obviously, 
focus on development, on CPD, feedback loops, and really invest in that. And then the final bit is kind of the final chapter. Um, and again, I, I, I learned this very early on from John, um, but I think that we've kind of taken a bit further. And it's the idea that in a blueprint school, the leaders care as much about the kid in the school down the road as they do about their own kids. Um, and certainly I think in England, the the worst thing that's happened in the last 10 years has been this competition, mm-hmm. climbing all over each other, doing each other down. Um, and for all sorts of reasons, that leads to toxicity, drives people out of the profession, um, leads to off rolling. All of, all of the bad stuff that you can see that goes on in some schools in England, you can actually bring it back to excessive competition. Mm-hmm. And at the moment when you say that, I'm not just the head of a school, I'm a, I'm a system leader and I care about other schools, then you can really start to transform things. And that's kind of what we, what we talk about. We try and make it beyond just a school or a trust and actually bring it to the kind of system level. Certainly that's incredibly powerful that what you said there about the leaders care as much about the kid down the road. And I totally agree with, mm. with that idea of, of competition because Every young, every young person deserves deserves the best, the best of best of us as, as staff, as school leaders, and, and the best teaching so that they can have the best opportunities when they when they leave school. So that that was brilliant. I like what you said there about well being becomes the the byproduct, the result of what you do. And we're going to unpick some of that and some of the some of the themes within the book. And and it starts. John Thompson wrote wrote a lot of chapters about recruiting the best for your school, and as you as a CEO of 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 multiple schools this was the shortest chapter but how important is it to ensure that the candidates that you employ fit your school and your school's culture mm. Mm. i think it's really important it's 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 something that i've realized later you know if i could go back 10 years i think i'd think more carefully about this um because a lot of recruitment in the past has been about kind of the the technical bits around teaching you know, the knowledge and so on, all of which are important. But, you know, we've all worked with people who are, you know, in a different school would be great, but they're the wrong cultural fit. Um, and I think the the success of the kids comes from the quality of the staff and the quality of the staff comes from training and well-being. Um and underpinning all of that has to be a really explicit culture. So I think that when we recruit, it's really, really important that um, we can articulate really clearly what the culture of the place is and give people the opportunity to see that. Um, and then ask themselves, you know, the honest question, is this somewhere that I can see myself? You know, I always say that in interview. It's one of my questions. Can you see yourself working here? Um, and and why? <laughs> why is that? And I think there's there's a danger of this, and the danger is that it becomes quite cosy. So you always end up appointing people in your own image. You know, you always end up people appointing people who won't challenge because you think, um, you know, well, our culture's right, and anybody who who would challenge it is is therefore by definition wrong. Um, so I think you've got to be confident, and you've got to be open, and you've got to be you've got to want people who are going to come in and are going to move the place on. Um, you know, and might ask some difficult questions, but it's got to come from, you know, a place of, of positivity. And I, I just try to appoint optimists, really. Um, you know, that's the that's the thing for me. Um, I hate negativity in schools. Um, and I think if you've got people who, who like kids, um, and we've all had teachers as when we were at school who blatantly didn't like kids, um, so that's kind of the starting point. You've got to like young people um, and you've got to want to get better as a teacher. It's the old Dylan William thing. It's not because you're not good enough. It's that we can all get better at what we do. Um, and if you've got that, then I think everything else can can follow. And then, I mean, the final bit that I guess is also, you know, underpinning that is, is a teachers who have the um, the subject knowledge and the subject expertise um, because you could, in theory, without that, appoint somebody who is a great cultural fit, who wants to be great and wants to get better, but actually doesn't know very much about their subject. So, so that's important too. 
Um, but it's just about getting that, you know, that fit right. Mm, it certainly is, and, and it's also about the about teachers choosing the right school. So it's it's great that you ask that <laughs> questions about whether you can see themselves fit in there because because you have to you have to as you say you have to love the children and and you have to you have to have that your subject knowledge so that you can really thrive and, and push on and 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 give the best to young people. So thank you for that. Um, why should we we focus on early career teachers and, and, and specifically the first three years of, of a teacher's career and, and added to that, how do we get it right in these first three years to make sure that they do thrive? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think we, we um, one of the best things that's happened in the last couple of years is this is this understanding of the importance of early career. And I think the, the simple reason why we have to focus on it and why we have to get it right is that we we lose too many staff at the end of year one and the end of year two um you know so if you look at all of the stuff around retention you look at all of the research around effectiveness of of teachers um we train teachers on the itt it's a really steep learning curve in year one and in year two and by the end of year two if the conditions are right you're starting to reach kind of a high level of efficacy um, and that's the point at which people start leaving the profession in droves. So the system had had woken up a little while ago to the numbers issue around losing staff, but it's still not fully woken up to the fact that it's a school improvement issue because it's not just we're losing staff so we won't have enough teachers. It's that we also are losing them at the point where they're becoming really effective. Um so even if you leave the human element out of it, which I don't want to, but even if you do, it's a massively inefficient way of operating to put all of that money into into training and all of that investment. And then the point at which they're absolutely starting to fly, um, they walk. So that's kind of the, the key bit, really. And I think the in terms of getting that bit right, it's about seeing it as a, as a genuine three-year thing. So, you know, when I trained, it was you did your PGT and you're a qualified teacher. And then there was a little bit of support in the NQT year. And then you were, you got 22 lessons a week. Um, and that was that and off you go. Um, whereas actually having a really joined up program that where ITT year is just year one of three and NQT year is just year two of three. Um, it gives you an opportunity then to, to have that coherence that you need and you need. And I think, again, this is something that we're still not there on. You need really high quality mentoring and you need mentors who are trained mm-hmm. and you need mentors, ideally, who are qualified. Um, and one of the mistakes, I said it on some, another thing that I did, one of the mistakes that I used to make as a head was when we were dishing out who the mentors were, we'd do all the timetables and then you'd go, oh, who's, who's a period under? Who's got a spare hour? They can be the mentor. Whereas actually the mentoring needs to go in first because if the mentor is pivotal to the success of the teacher and retaining them, um, then you need your best. So it shouldn't just be who fancies doing it or who's under. It should be who wants to do it, who's willing to develop the expertise, who's willing to be trained, and then that person needs to be protected so that they can do the mentoring because we know that great mentoring is really, really powerful and poor mentoring does nothing whatsoever. Mm. Certainly, I like what you said there about prioritising the time of, of, of the mentor. I think back to... To my NQT year, I, I had I had the jo- joy of, of two mentors who, who both work part time, but but the the attention, the care, the, the the learning that underwent from both of them because they really prioritised my development was 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 second to none. So I, I, I totally un- totally understand that, and I like and that. That's great to hear, isn't it? Because so often you hear about the you know the negative stuff. I talk in the book. My my NQT mentor was was brilliant. She was lovely, um, but the system. And the quality of the training that was there was non-existent because it just wasn't in any school mm-hmm. at that point. So it's actually really nice to hear, uh, you know, somebody talking about where you've had particularly co-mentorship as well. I think that's really potentially really powerful if that if that's working well. No, no, definitely to have it from having two different types of people all, all pulling pulling for you is it was yeah. great to <laughs> tap into their wealth of experience and and they they essentially put me under their wing and 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 led me led me to. To become the teacher I am today, so I, I totally understand it. I like how you said they need to be prioritised first, rather than who's who's a period under. Yeah. It's it's about right. They 
they have the skill set, they need to be a mentor, we'll attach yeah. them and then you assign the time. I, I really do like that idea. And it brings me yeah, on the to time my table is in, the, the timetable is in my trust hate me because I'm I'm forever going, we need to prioritise this and then we need to prioritise that and we need to prioritise that and then they say, still got to make a timetable work, Ali. Um, so <laughs> I'm paying them back because I have to write them. I know how hard it is. So, <laughs> <I'm just> <laughs> so uh, you've, you've been there and taken the heat. Now it's, the, now it's their turn. <laughs> And it, it, that kind of brings me on nicely to my next question in joining that, this idea of, of teacher learning. So not just your first three years, but throughout your career. And, and teacher learning should be a priority for school leaders. What advice do you have for school leaders to make this a priority and help teachers continue to learn throughout their career? I think just a little bit like I said at the start about really believing in the notion of putting staff first. I think if a school or a trust is saying that teacher learning is a priority, then you've got to clear the decks and you've got to put structures in to allow that to happen. Um, and John's stuff in the book is really good on this. Huntington have been have been really ahead of the curve for a number of years on this with the protected time um, and the constant refinement of it. It's not just, you know, it's not good enough just to say, you know, go off and read or, you know, do this or the other or, or you know, your, your CPD, your learning is... Um, fit around other stuff you've got to have a really clear structure you've got to prioritize it you've got to get the time in there and then I think so you know something that that we try to do and something that I've seen you know lots of other places doing really really well now is getting that that notion of teacher autonomy um, and giving people the opportunity to develop themselves and to understand their learning needs and to develop and teacher autonomy doesn't you know sometimes it's misunderstood people think it's just you know do what you like don't have any quality assurance don't check check in on people just leave them to it and that's quite naive really mm -hmm. um but it's about having a a culture where you say our starting point is professional trust and then we will provide the time the resource the expertise to allow you to engage in this but then at that point there's no excuse for not doing <laughs> And if you don't want to engage in getting better, mm -hmm. then you're not in the right school. Um, and that bit is quite hard edged. You know, I think we we are both quite strong on that notion that if somebody is not willing to engage in that idea that they have a professional obligation to improve, then they shouldn't be in our trust or in our schools, because that's kind of a non-negotiable for us. Um, but if you're going to ask that of people, by God, you've got to make sure that they've got the time, the structure, the expertise to do it. Um, and that, again, is why, you know, the, the research school network and uh, the work of the EF is so exciting because it's made it a whole lot easier for us to do. So, so isn't it? it goes back to what we were talking about earlier about the, the cultural fit and that mm. that being that being part of the cultural fit. If, if you're coming into to our school, you need to you need to continue learning and, and, and progress. Otherwise, Otherwise, find another place that, that would allow you just to stagnate, which hopefully is nowhere. Mm. Um, yeah. <laughs> how then can we use, you mentioned the work of the research schools and the EEF. How then can we use research and evidence to create evidence-informed teachers in their classrooms and in their context? Mm. Um, I think it's, it's, it's really important that we, that we do this. Um, and going back to what I said before, I think the school leadership has got to ensure that the structure is right and that it's accessible to people. So if you are saying that it's part of your professional duty to engage with research and engage with evidence, you have to then strip out as much rubbish from teachers' lives to create space to do it. Um, so I think, you know, I think two years ago, um, there was a big job to do getting people to engage with the EF to understand, you know, some of the research and other recent, lots of other, you know, great organisations like the Teacher Development Trust. Um, I think we've, we, we, we ought to be winning that battle now. Um, so the, the job of the leader isn't so much to build awareness of that and to make that accessible. The job of the leader is to try and get rid of as much pointless nonsensical time-consuming stuff so that the teacher can 
you know, absolutely engage with that with that properly because you can, you know you'll be the same as me. You start you you start getting into something, you start finding something you know interesting and important. You can't necessarily squeeze it into the spare twenty minutes between <laughs> period one and period two, and the fact that you had to you know catch some kid up and chase them up for this, that, and the other. Um, so a, a lot of this stuff ends up inevitably being done in people's time outside um, outside school. And if they are doing that, then we can't expect them to be marking books for four hours a night. Um, so what you can do to facilitate that is you can you can get rid of the, the, the pointless nonsense. And there's an awful lot when you start doing it. And I know you'll, you'll ask me about workloading a bit, but there's, there's an awful lot when you really get going and you get on a roll of going through your organization and saying, is there any point to this? It's really liberating <laughs> and it's really powerful. Um, and it can create an awful lot of, it can free up an awful lot of time for people. No, I like that. I like that question of, of asking of the stuff we do in schools. Is there any any point to this? Because you know, I, I listen to a lot of people talk about about Scottish education. I, I'm beginning to know more about the the English system, but there's just so many competing priorities, and we do so many things that. Sometimes you've got so many spinning plates that mm-hmm. eventually they all they all just fall down rather than keeping one or two constantly going. And, and you mentioned there about about getting rid of that point and stuff. And you mentioned there also about workload. So workload is a, is a big issue that, that that permeates teacher discourse. Can you can you share a little bit about your workload charter? Mm. Yeah, I mean it's something we're we're really proud of in our trust. Um, it, we we have a we have a published workload charter. Um, we have it on our on our trust website. There's a kind of one page version. There's a seven page version. The seven page version is really worth a read. But somebody pointed out to me that asking somebody to read seven pages on workload is a bit of a workload issue. So that's why we ended up um, coming up with a one page version. But um, it's the important thing about it is the process that we went through to get to it, and it took us over a year. Um, to create and the way we did it was by sitting down with um, the county union reps we sit across two local authorities so mm. when I have a union meeting and we you know, have a really positive relationship with our unions but I have the pleasure of having two reps from every union um, because there's two counties and they, they I've got to you know, give them a lot of the credit for this because they were the ones who pushed me on it um, and they kind of after became CEO um, and we had a really, you know, like I say, we had a positive relationship. We meet face to face regularly. Um, but there was a bit of an elephant in the room because I knew that there was a, a workload issue in the system. I knew that there was a workload issue in our trust and they were, were asking me about it. So what I did is I said, right, what I want you to do in the next meeting is basically just give me and my director of HR every kind of thing that you want us to look at everything that you want us to look at and we will go away and then we'll come back and we'll say you know where we are and they went through all the things that you'd expect they talked about marking they talked about emails they talked about meetings um various other things and we went away and when we came back um we had a great conversation because i kind of said to them where's the effect of is this actually all you want um because the teachers have been kind of conditioned to only ask about certain things um and actually there was a lot more but because of the fact that we're doing it face to face because of the fact that we didn't just have um, and we're doing it over a period of time um we were able to have a proper conversation one of the great ones that we had was about emails and emails you know i don't know what it's like for you but it's the bane of so many people's lives and the you know getting rid of the old staff email is a dead easy one um but i was surprised to find out that still goes on in some schools but the the conversation started they said to me you know what about the idea of turning the emails off at six o'clock at night or you know having delayed send or you know a, a kind of systematic solution and when i went back in i said the, the problem that i've got is that if somebody teaches a five period day and it's it's usually gender wise it's usually a woman but it's not always it can be a man too and at 3.30, they need to get out of school, go pick the kids up from nursery, get them home, 
it's a long time since my daughter was this little, so I can't remember what order you do everything in. You do tea, you do bath, you do CBBs or whatever, and get them to bed, and then start working at eight o'clock at night. That's your professional choice. If I turn the emails off at five o'clock, they may feel that they can't leave the site and they have to stay in. So actually what I'm doing is I'm not trusting them professionally. So all we did with emails is we said that it's an absolute trust commitment starting from me that there is no expectation that you reply to emails outside work hours. Um, you can send them, but you can't expect to reply. And because it comes from the top of the organization, leaders are absolutely clear that if they ever, you know, go into somebody or email somebody and say, well, you didn't respond to my email on Sunday, then the problem's with the leader and not the member of staff. And, and actually, they were much more comfortable with that. So we've got, you know, we've looked at, at issues around marketing. We've looked at emails. We've looked at meetings. But the most powerful bit, I think, of the, of the whole chart is the bit that we wrote about culture because we actually wrote into it the stuff around what leaders are meant to do. Because you can have, you know, any charter going, you could say nobody ever marks a book and nobody has to write a piece of planning and nobody has to look at an email after four o'clock at night. But if your lived experience in school is one of fear, then forget the workload stuff. Um, so actually, you know, putting at the heart of it that, that leaders are there to reduce anxiety and leaders are there to remove barriers. So there is an, there's an open invitation in the trust. If anybody finds something that we do that they think that we could do without doing, we will look at it. And if we can't justify it, and we can't demonstrate that it improves outcomes for young people, then we stop doing it. Um, and that's where, I mean, we, we, we did it on a trust planning weekend. I just gave out um, post-it notes to all the heads and the trust team and said, right on the post-it note, anything you can think of that we do in school that basically we want to put in room 101. And what we found, and I think this is really important because I think every organisation, every school, every trust should do this. We've, over time, we've put systems in that have replaced old systems, but we've forgotten to take the old systems out. So if you look at the way performance management still works in a lot of English schools, when performance management was first introduced back in the late 90s, nobody ever went in anybody else's lesson. The only time somebody came in your lesson was either to borrow some pencils or to do the one-off, one-hour-long lesson observation when, you know, we've all done it, haven't we? You write up the lesson plan, you bring in the clowns, you do the dancing, and people say that's outstanding. Over time, we've introduced, you know, lesson drop-ins, we've looked at, you know, books, we've talked to kids. And actually, that's removed the need for the long lesson observation. But a lot of places have forgotten to take it out, so we've ended up with system on system on system. And actually what we've done a lot of is, is unpeeling layers of systems and saying you only want the thing that you absolutely need and that you're clear about what its purpose is. And that's where, you know, that's where our getting rid of um, performance management in its, old, in its old way, you know, that's where it went because there is no point to it. Performance-related pay and performance management with the three targets are two of the most pointless things and most time-consuming things that schools do. Um, they're a nonsense and we got rid um, but that doesn't mean we don't have performance development <laughs> mm -hmm. you know it's a very very different thing but that goes back to the thing we talked about before about having an evidence-based system having proper teacher learning having feedback loops and having having it underpinned by that professional commitment to get better at your job certainly and I like that that question that, that we should all ask of, of everything we do does it improve outcomes for young people if it doesn't just get rid of it and, and I love what you said there about the change in, in performance management and, and I can imagine now it's a much more supportive uh, and, mm -hmm. and forward thinking thinking appraisal appraisal system rather than, the, than this let's watch you and then find out where you are and, and the stress yeah. and, and as you mentioned you've mentioned the word fear before this fear is is, is gone so and just so people just so people listening don't think I'm just throwing barbs at other people it's worth me saying that a lot of the systems we got rid of were systems that I had introduced because, you know, I thought that's what we should be doing. Um, and the, what I will defend, you know, there's a lot of stuff on Twitter where SLTs just get attacked. And I think one of the things people need to understand is that under the old way of doing things with Ofsted, you know, Michael Wilshaw and all the rest of it, 
a school was required to present its records of performance management. It was required to present its pay decisions. So it's a lot easier for me to do it now because I'm not having to put heads with Ofsted over it. But if I'd wanted to do that back in, you know, 2009, I'd have been, I'd have been risking my my own career and my own, you know, the organisation. Fortunately, I wasn't ahead at the time, so I didn't have to worry about it. But so, you know, it's not just me saying, oh, you know, we, we're great and other people aren't. It's me being honest about the fact that mm-hmm. I've made mistakes along the way and I've done things that wouldn't have stood up to my new level of scrutiny. Um, and I think, again, it's important that leaders are honest about that. I think people actually respect people who go, yeah, that was my idea. It was a bit rubbish. I'm sorry. We're not doing it anymore. Certainly, and that's, that's all part of, of all of our development, and, I, and I'm sure you're not the only one that, that brought something in, pushed it, and then realised, oh, that, 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 that's not great, we'll, 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 we'll try something else. Well, when, we're do, when we're doing the book, one of the funny conversations we had over, over a bacon, but he was just laughing about some of the things that we'd introduced that we thought were great, you know, like, not quite ranging, but stuff, you know, uh, learning to learn uh, was something that I used to believe in. Um, John bought... Um, the original teach toolkit and gave it out to every member of staff and thought he'd done CPD because he'd given them a book. You know, we've all done things where we look back now and go, um, and I, 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 I don't like, you know, some of the stuff on social media where there's this kind of sneering about, you know, are we, you know, we know how it's done now. We're all a bit knowledge rich and look at those idiots 10 years ago. Um, because some of the people who were doing things that maybe don't now stand up to everything that's also happened to be the best teachers um and they were getting bloody good results from here another mm-hmm. um you know and i think there's got to be a little it'd be nice to see a little bit more respect to people who were leading schools 10 years ago um who were doing things the way that they, they genuinely thought were right no certainly not and I, f- I fully agree with that just because things are, are, are different now doesn't mean that because at the time people were, were making the, the right decisions for the right reasons and doing things that they thought 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 were right and obviously people are doing that now and it then it takes a it takes a really reflective reader. We talk a lot in Scotland about reflective practitioners and, and thinking back and how can we improve. And it takes a really good reflective practitioner to realise, yeah, that, I, I did that. It didn't work. It doesn't work now. I'm going to do I'm going to do it better and I'm going to promise that I'm going to do better for, for my staff and the young people. So so thank you for thank you very much for mentioning that. And it, and it brings us on now to to what you wrote about behaviour. So you're right that, that we should make conversations about behaviour the norm, as valid and important as conversations about curriculum and pedagogy. How does this look in practice and, and how much of a school leader's role is behaviour management? Um, yeah, it's funny. So when we were, when we were divvying up the chapters and John went, oh, you can write the one on behaviour, I was like, oh, thanks very much, because that's, you know, that's the, the ultimate hornet's nest, isn't it, where... You, you take a side and you get you get slated on Twitter. Um, the um, the as I was writing the chapter, it actually helped me to clarify some of my thinking. I'm, I'm, I was fortunate the EF's behaviour report had come out just about maybe six months before, and I was fortunate enough to listen to Higgy Rhodes from the EF um, sort of unpacking. She wrote the report and she unpacked it at an event that I was at. And what was really interesting for me was that so much of the discussion around behaviour has become very, very black and white and it's become very, very heated and it has labels stuck on it. So, you know, we actually say in the book, we don't we don't kind of identify with any tribe. Um, I'm not warm strict. I'm not, I don't want to ban booths. Um, I'm not a traditionalist and I'm not a progressive. Um, I can look at and admire people from all of those camps um, and I can recognize that all of them um, are making a valid contribution and are talking about the world the way the, the way that they see it and what Iggy was kind of saying in the in the report there's a couple of things that became really important for us one was around that idea of of teaching good behavior and being explicit about it and it's interesting for me because the school that I was was head at, and it's you know one of the, the really successful schools in the trust. You know, Ofsted outstanding, top five um, percent regularly for progress, and all the rest of it. Um, and in that school, at one point, if you'd said we need to to really focus on teaching kids to behave, 
people might have looked at that and said, oh, you're saying there's a behavior problem, Johnny. <laughs> Why are we doing that? Um, so I found that really useful. And then from that was that idea that you have to be, you have to have a culture, a coaching culture for staff around behavior. And I think that's often the bit that we've missed. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we talk about it in the book, you know, it's so much easier as a history teacher to sit down with your colleague and say, um, I'm really struggling to teach this concept of the competing claims to the throne in 1066. What do you reckon? How do you do it? That's a dead easy conversation to have. It's a much more difficult conversation to have to say, I've got this year nine class and I'm really struggling with this, you know, seven, eight of them are messing around, whatever I try and do. Because the first one, you feel like you're a professional talking about your subject. And the second one makes you feel like you're a failure because it's the most deep seated fear in all teachers is I can't do behavior. Um, and it's the same way if you want to really annoy your head, you just go up to them and say, oh, behavior's been a bit bouncy the last couple of weeks um, and watch their, you know, watch their head explode. So getting to the point where we can have those honest coaching conversations. And then the other bit of it, I think, that was really important was in the in that EEF report, um, the number five and number six for the recommendations appear on the surface to conflict with each other. Um, because one of them talks about the need for consistency and the other one talks about the need for personalization. Now, this is the point at which Twitter goes into a meltdown because the the consistency lot go consistency, 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 and the personalization lot focus on that. And actually, the reality is it's both. Um, and what a the role of the leader in terms of behavior is being really effective in every day, being able to sense where that balance sits. So every school can say it differently. You know, some will, and even in, you know, schools that get get slated, I'm not going to name names, but schools that get slated for being zero tolerance and all the rest of it. And I've been into some some of those schools and there's some of the best personalization and the most humane treatment of, of young people. And in schools that, that you know, are, are depicted as progressive, you actually see a, a huge level of consistency. So any school can set that 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 bar and that balance between consistency and personalization wherever they want. But the job of the leader is to be able to sense when it's slipping one way or the other and then addressing it in an honest way. But you can't do that if you don't have an openness around talking about behavior. So school leaders should be, you know, they should be in corridors, they should be visible, they should be around the place, they should be supporting colleagues and they should be constantly saying to staff, you know, what can I do to help you out with that? We should central, you know, stuff, there's loads of debate about detentions. We should centralise detentions. We should do all of those things because that removes something from teaching staff so they can focus on something that really matters. That's what the SLT can do. But I also think it's about intelligent leadership and not saying either we're 100% consistent or 100% personalisation and recognising that every single school in the UK does, does a combination of both. But it's just about saying where that balance is and making sure that you um, that you recognise when it's slipping one way and not the other. Certainly, and I love your your recognition there of of, of we're all doing slight variations of of, of the same thing. Mm. You, can, you can't go a hundred percent one way because because mm-hmm. school and and school and, and everything that it entails is so nuanced that, that mm. there's always going to be. One child will present one way, one child will present the other, and, and, and you're never going to get, there's always going to be grey areas, so you need to be able to personalise the grey areas, and, and of course you can you can have consistency, and you can you can, you can can have your, your, your warm, strict approach, but there's going to be areas that you just need to have that little bit of nuance, so thank you very much for 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 mentioning that, and, and I like that idea of what you said there about how recognising how hard it is to to have that conversation around behaviour because you don't want to be the, the teacher that can't handle the children and how comparing that to how easy it is to ask about about the subject specific stuff and the idea about having honest conversations around behaviour and developing that coaching culture for staff so thank you very much much for that and um, moving on then we you, you write a little bit about inspection now inspection scares the life out we talk about fear it scares the life out of some people so how do school leaders best prepare for inspection and, and, and create a, a culture where their teachers can thrive under inspection? 
Um, I think by doing the worrying yourself, um, too too many too many schools have prepared for inspection by trying to replicate it and doing doing mock steads and replicating the process. And all that does is it puts staff through a whole load of pressure. And at the end of it, it doesn't really help at all. When when Ofsted come, you want to be confident about your school. You want to know your strengths and your areas for development. And you want staff to be as relaxed as it's possible to be. And I'm not naive because I've been through loads. Um, of course, you're, you're, you know, you're concerned. But the not not being I, I've been in schools where the, there's been such a heightened sense of anxiety about the impending Ofsted and every meeting is you know Ofsted this and when Ofsted come and we needed to do that and all the rest of it and it you know it does nothing um so getting people to teach the best lessons they possibly can day in day out getting that development right getting the culture right doing all of that and then just doing the background you know you need a good um or, or whatever you need your documentation right you need a load of people who know the the inspection process inside out because you know john and i have both have both led schools through outstanding inspections we've had a school that's gone from from measures to good um and you need sometimes to be able to argue with inspectors you need to know that you know the technicality of the inspection framework but that's got that's what a good head does and a good deputy does um and staff don't need to be encumbered with all of that kind of stuff so having a having a school that that runs really well day in day out um the the leadership team knowing the process inside out and knowing their evidence base well but not bothering staff with with all of that and not conveying any anxieties that you've got yourself um you know we say again we say in the book when when the driffield school was in special measures um, went through a really, really difficult time. Um, we had the inspection in, I've forgotten now because of COVID. It really was still this year, January this year. Um, the day before we got the call, um, Scott, the head, led um, a training day on the, the January training day. Ofsted was not mentioned once. Even though we knew we were in the window, we knew they were imminent. Ofsted weren't mentioned once. We got the call the next day um, and we got good. Um and the one of the best things about the um, the inspection was that the lead inspector said to us, he said, you've done you've you've led this school. You've not gone for quick fixes. You know, when we talk to staff, they talk genuinely about well-being. They feel genuinely cared for and developed. And you've done the hard slog and you've tried to improve the school with an eye to the long term, you know, without off rolling kids, without high levels of exclusion without entering kids for loads of loads of easy qualifications you've done it properly and i can see that and i think that was something we were really really proud of and the staff you know said afterwards they said that the you know not me but the the leadership team the head and the team around him had looked after them in the run-up to it and the best preparation they had was to be looked after and supported um and on inspection they flew and you know we were immensely proud of them and the same you know at john's school they got outstanding and in the same way um so it's it's the best thing that's, that that leaders can do um is to try and again take that anxiety away and do the worrying for the for the staff no definitely it's uh it's, it's wonderful that the, the the leaders that you that you know that are, that are doing that are being recognized for that and in, in, in their inspection reports and, and obviously by that by their staff as well and the staff must 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 feel feel incredibly valued as well when when they're just being allowed to just just thrive and and, and the leaders are, are are dealing with the with with the inspection for them and it brings me on to to my last question for the for the interview section johnny before we move on to final three and in chapter 11, you, you write about developing a staff-first culture across a school-led system. How do we move away fully from an accountability-based system to one that focuses on improving the whole school system and puts staff first? Um, we touched on it earlier on, but the, the, the bottom line of it is, is leading a school in a way where you care about the school down the road. It's not an easy thing to do. The accountability system at the moment, um, certainly in England, is one big zero sum game um progress eight is a comparable measure so for every school that goes up another one goes down you know all that everybody knows all that now um 
so real change will come when we when we actually get to a a sensible and intelligent accountability system and i think what's quite interesting about about covid is the the day after the government rightly had to announce that there'd be no league tables this summer um certainly my experience in schools is nobody like down tools went oh brilliant we won't bother doing the right for the kids now people worked harder people collaborated more so um but school leaders cannot use the accountability system as an excuse for their own poor behavior they have to look in the mirror um and say so for example um if you take the issue of off-rolling um and one of the best things about the new Ofsted framework is it's it's trying, and it's not perfect, but it's trying to address that issue. When a kid's off-rolled, not only is it damaging to the kid, but it also makes the job of the school down the road more difficult because the kid probably ends up in that school. And we've had in our schools, kids um, who've come from other schools in very suspicious circumstances where they think they've been excluded when they haven't. Um, and that kid comes with baggage, and that kid, by definition, is a is a is a kid who's difficult to work with. Um, so not only so by off rolling, the school makes their job easier, but actually makes the job of the school down the road. And that's kind of where my thinking of, around this came from. And this is why it's no good a school saying, you know, I'll do right by my school, and I'll get the outstanding Ofsted, and I'll get the 0.5 progress A, but I'll do it by shafting the school down the road. That's no good at all, because we can demonstrate, I think, that ethical leadership is crucial to the success of the system going forward. Without it, without doing right by staff, we won't have enough staff in schools. We won't have enough people to, to teach kids. Um, we know that people stay in supportive cultures and perform better in support, supportive cultures, and there's plenty of research that shows that. Um, and if school leaders on mass said we're not playing the game anymore we're not chasing the badges we're not going to put any more banners outside our schools when the local press asks for the press release about the results i'm just going to send them pictures of smiling kids and tell them about the individual kids i'm not going to give you any information because i'm not going to compete and the, we've got that in our gift to do that mm -hmm. we could all do that ofsted don't make us do it the department doesn't make us do it we do it um, and we can choose not to do it. And the day that we choose not to do it, and hopefully the accountability system catches up, is the day when um, when schools will have the kind of cultures that people want to work in. And the more people who want to work in schools, the better the pool of talent, the better the deal the kids get. It really is. It's difficult to do, but it's a simple notion. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it certainly is, and 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 I'm sure that one day we will we will get we will get to that. But it's definitely it's definitely something that we should all be working towards. So that's wonderfully articulated, Johnny. So that that brings us to the end of the of the interview section. Before we move on to the final three questions, and before we do that, can you can you share with with the listeners where they can they can buy putting staff first, where also they can hear a little bit more from you, and, and where they could engage with you on on social media. Uh, yeah, the, I mean the books on Amazon and uh, and John Cat. It's only a tenner. Um, my mum is very proud that I'm a published author on uh, on Amazon. Um, John's an old heart. I think he's written four books now. Um, but it's still very exciting for me. Um, I do still sometimes just search by my name just to see it pop up. Um, so, uh, and then in terms of, I mean, in terms of social media, we both, you know, tweet a reasonable amount. Um, and we are, we, we're talking at the moment about um, ways we might be able to, we, we've had lots of people contact and I really welcome it. We always try and help people out asking about different bits in the chapter. You know, John gets a lot around his, disciplined inquiry approach to performance development I get a lot around the workload stuff and we're always really happy to help people but we are thinking about whether there's a way of, of building a kind of staff, putting staff first blog or potentially putting on some events um, you know we've all finally discovered Zoom and Teams and, and all the rest of it so one of the nice things about um, COVID has actually been how much engagement there's been you know our conversation now with you lots of great people that I've engaged with and chatted to who I wouldn't have done before so we, we are looking at whether there's a way of, of doing that we'll probably have to get somebody to come and help us because we're both technologically useless so that hopefully is something that we might be able to, to get going in the in the new year 
Definitely, that'll be that'll be very very exciting and, and something. I'll certainly sign up to to a Zoom chat with <laughs> with yourself and John, telling us telling us all the all the great stories and all your all your great ideas. So thank you. So on to the final three, Johnny. These are the questions that I ask every guest, and and some of the some of the ideas that and and the thoughts that they share is just truly wonderful. So my first one there is: what book or text has had the biggest impact on your teaching career? Um. There's, there's quite a few, but the one that I think has been most important is quite a recent one. Is um, is Becky Allen and Sam Sims' Teacher Gap, um, because a lot of the stuff that I talk about now, we've started to talk about, and I was talking to my my trust board about. When I read Teacher Gap, I realised that I had this conversation with Sam Twistleton a little while ago that I kind of discovered the research afterwards i had a hunch it was right and then found the research and it but it's such a powerful um it's such a powerful book it's so brilliantly written because it's a great combination of of lived experience of either sam becky or people that they've spoken to but also some really powerful um research so i you know whenever i talk publicly i'm always quoting them i'm always kind of nicking their ideas and actually i do have a copy of it in my briefcase that I just carry around because I'm forever in meetings. Going, oh, you need to see this. You need to see that. It's a, it's a brilliant book. Um, there's loads of great stuff. I mean, I could, you know, I could name a load, but you asked for one, so I'll say Becky Allen Sampson. Yeah. <laughs> thank you, Joe. I think you're the first person that's actually just given me one. Right. <laughs> well, so thanks so thanks so much for that. So the, the second question is, if you could give one bit of advice to a teacher, what would that be? <laughs> that's such a good question, and I think. I, I'm always a bit worried now because people go, oh yeah, but you're a CEO and when did you last teach? I did teach as a head, I have to say that. It was only in the last two years as a CEO that I've not I've felt I was letting the kids down. So, um, the, so I'm always a bit dubious about advising teachers because they might say, yeah, what do you know? Um, so rather than kind of anything about the classroom, I'd say really just don't listen to cynics. Um, there's too much cynicism in the system on all sides and just don't listen to them. Um, and also I think more recently, the other kind of curse is don't is, is ignore people who have complete certitude about stuff. You know, the, again, I, I know I keep going about Twitter and there's so much great stuff on Twitter, but you know, when people go, it really is as simple as that boom. Um, and they're always, you know, they're shooting people down. And I was, you know, John's, written quite a bit and he was saying to me for a couple of years you know what do you think about writing something and and I you know I still have a bit of the um imposter syndrome and kind of thought I don't have anything you know to say and I'm you know but I've written half a book um I lead six schools we've got you know an Ofsted outstanding we've got an outstanding skit I've got a reasonable track record um and I've got some experience that's worth sharing but also I've made loads and loads of mistakes and I've got loads and loads of things wrong um, so when people don't display that level of humility and just tell you how it how it is, I generally ignore it. Certainly. And if I, if I start doing it, ignore me. <laughs> Certainly. <laughs> and, and you've meant you've you've exemplified some of that humility throughout the, the interview and recognising that that some of the things you used to do you you don't do now and for for the right reasons. So thank you very much, Johnny. And my final question to you is is what what do you think? gets in the way most of, of just great teaching in our classrooms? Um, too much stuff. Um, <laughs> the, the stuff that we talked about before, too much of the nonsense. If if behaviour can get in the way, but if you can pick that up, but, you know, all of the, here's a spreadsheet, here's an endless piece of analysis, here's something with an acronym, here's a new system. It's all that stuff that gets in the way. Um and that's why stripping that out is so important because if you've got somebody who's feeling supported and developed and confident and not overwhelmed in the classroom, the kids get an amazing deal. And it's the job of teachers, of, of leaders to do everything they can to get to that position. So get rid of the, get rid of the crap, basically. Certainly, I like that idea of, of giving the kids the, the amazing deal. Thank you, Johnny. And all, all these mates say is thank you so, so much for, for giving me your time. This evening, it's, it's, it's been great to, to pick your brains on, on on a wonderful book, and I do hope listeners listeners go and buy it, and, and I look forward to, to hearing more from, from yourself and, and, of course, John. So thank you very much. Yeah, thank you. It's been a, a, a delight to be on. I'm really grateful to be asked. So thank, thank you very much. Thank you.
thank you for listening to the Becoming Educated podcast. Until next time. Teach with joy.